Thank you. Uh, anyways, a couple of things. Uh, we had a great week with Forest Cliff Camp this past week, so please be continuing to pray for uh, the seeds that were planted, that God would give the growth. Um, it's not just the kid, it's the families as well. So pray that God would give them hearts that enable them to believe and that God's kingdom would continue to grow. Uh, continue to pray for that ministry as they continue to travel to other churches in Ontario and seek to, do, to uh, be a service in that way. So it's a great opportunity for us. A special thanks to those who volunteered in helping with that. It was a lot of work. They were here every, every day just making sandwiches for the 30-odd people that needed food. Uh, so please be uh, making sure that we give thanks to them. And for our staff, Pastor Matt pulled in some extra hours this past week and was running around like a chicken with his head chopped off with sound and all that stuff. And for Jeff, as he had to keep cleaning every day. Um, so p we're thankful for that. Also, one other thing before we move on, because I know I'm going to get in trouble if I don't say anything, but we're in a bit of a baby boom right now, if you got the email this week. Um, so we're praising God for Judah, who was born this past week um, to Maris and Garov, and we're praising God for that. Pray for them, because if you've all been there before, yeah. <laughs> it's a blessing, right? Blessed is a man whose quiver is full of arrows, right, as the psalm says. So we'll be praying for them as well, but it's a very super cute picture if you had your email. I can't show you because it's on my phone. But if you don't have email, you can come up to me and ask me, and I'll be like, yeah, here's a picture. So we're praising God for that. And please be praying for all the other expecting parents and new parents that we are blessed with here at Nolwood. Um, our nursery, uh, Brenda was praying for 10 babies, and God seems to be answering that. So uh, please be praying for our nursery workers. If you got your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be following in our sermon series as we look at the book of Acts, and we'll be in verses 1 to 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can check out the Bible in the pew in front of you. It's going to be on page 541. If you don't have a Bible with at all, I encourage you to bring that one home, and the only stipulation is, is that you read it. Start with the Gospel of John or one of the Gospels and learn about who Jesus is. But we're in Acts chapter 19, so if you have a Bible or app or whatever you choose to use, please open it and follow along. There aren't a lot of things that overcome every obstacle that gets in its way. And I was thinking about this as a slogan came to mind that was actually coined in 1947. I didn't even think it was that old, 1947. An advertising agency created this slogan for a diamond company. And do you know what it is right off the bat from that description? It is this, diamonds last forever, right? It was used to emphasize the idea that diamonds, being extremely durable, would last a lifetime. They would symbolize how love and commitment in, in the context of an engagement ring and other things would last forever. On a side note, gentlemen, did you know that the engagement ring was an advertising ploy? Just putting that out there, okay? Just, just le let, let me just let that sit there for a sec. We're all suckers, I get it. But the slogan played a significant role in shaping a cultural perspective of diamonds as timeless and enduring symbols of love and, and devotion. We've all seen the commercials. But here's the problem, diamonds don't last forever, right? If you've ever worked with a diamond saw, you know that at some point you have to replace the diamond saw 
which makes no sense if diamonds last forever, right? And under the right conditions, that diamond will shatter. And just like any typical millennial, I googled, are there other things that are out there that are considered indestructible? And there are, but they're not. All at the same time. If Google couldn't give me the answer, then it must be true. <laughs> so here's the thing. Is there anything that's truly indestructible? Is there anything that can stand the test of time? Is there anything that we can trust with everything that we have? Wouldn't that bring great, amazing hope? And ultimately, wouldn't that be something that we can put our trust in? Let's read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20 together. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord says this. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he, they said, No, we have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil in the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons and that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the spirit, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerary, itinerant Jews, exorcist, Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I injure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so, they, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had, uh, sorry, those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Awesome God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to come and to worship. 
to gather together, to sing songs that make much of you, who remind us of the hope that we have that is only found in Jesus Christ. To remind each other of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we continue to worship through the listening and the preaching of your word, Lord, we pray that you are glorified. And God, I can't do this. I cannot preach so that you are glorified on my own. So I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And Lord, there's no way I can do this on my own. So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. God, use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. So in verses 1 to 10, we see a prevailing message in unbelief. In verse 1, we see that Paul comes to Ephesus as he wished he would. We saw this last week. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, if God wills it, I'm going to come back. And lo and behold, God willed it, and now he's back. And he finds some disciples. But here's the question, and Paul gets into this, is what kind of disciples are these 12 people? Really, everyone is a disciple, okay? So let's get that out of the way. Because a disciple is just someone who's learning from somebody, right? For us as Christians, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So we are disciples, we are forgiven sinners who are learning Christ in repentance and faith. That's what we mean by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But who are these disciples? And Paul goes on to figure out what he does. So he does some sleuthing, some investigation, and starts asking questions, which is a good way of doing almost anything in life before we jump to conclusions, by the way. It's just to ask questions. And he does that. He says in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because here is what we'll get at. Is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will have the Holy Spirit. In order to have the Holy Spirit, you need to have heard about the Holy Spirit. Right? So in our membership uh, meetings, when we're in our membership meetings, in our interviews, when our elders are interviewing, we ask some simple questions, and one of them being, tell us what the gospel is in about two minutes. Because again, it's a simple question to ask, but if someone is unable to tell us what the gospel is, how can you believe something that you can't articulate? Right? Same thing with here. We come along and we see Paul, he asks this question, what do you, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? And it's a great question that Paul asks. And he, they reply with, no, we have never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So what's Paul getting at here? He's getting to the heart of the issue with his questions. These people were definitely not Christian, is what he's saying. So this brings up the other question, what is a Christian then? Don't we just believe in Jesus? And so the answer to that is, yeah, absolutely. We do believe in Jesus. But Paul begins to break this down as he continues to go on and asks his questions. But on another note, we have a Trinitarian God. That's a big word, but what does that mean? It means that we have one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, yet the three persons are not separate gods, but share the same divine essence. That is the Trinity. That is the classic, orthodox definition of what that means. 
And each plays a part in salvation, and each are needed for salvation because God the Father initiates the plan, the Son accomplishes the redemption through his death and his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit applies the benefits of salvation to each Christian. So if they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, it means that they haven't had the benefits of the Holy Spirit which means they haven't had regeneration and conversion where God gives them a new heart that enables them to believe. It means that there's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the sanctification, which is this growing in Christ-likeness, right? In Christ, praise be to God, I can look back on my old life and say, hey, I've grown a little bit. I say a little bit. Hopefully it's a lot more than a little bit, Right? The other day, I was able to uh, send uh, a message to a couple of people that I knew from years ago. And I said, hey, I've been hearing some great things about who you are and what God is doing in and through you. That's because of the Holy Spirit. It's not because of anything else that anybody else has ever done. The Holy Spirit also helps us understand God's word. And helps us apply what we're reading to our own lives and helps us go forward. So when they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, they're missing out on a whole lot of things. The most important is that they're not saved. And what we have seen also is that the Holy Spirit empowers for ministry, including evangelism and teaching and serving. The Holy Spirit equips the Christians with the spiritual gifts for building up Christ's church and the proclamation of the gospel. So when Paul asks this question of the Holy Spirit and they respond with, yeah, never heard of it, then Paul knows that they don't have the saving faith because if they did, they would have the Holy Spirit. So he does some more investigation, which leads to his next question, because if they had been baptized in the way of Jesus, they would have for sure have heard the Holy Spirit, at least the name. Because we see in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commands his disciples to do what? To go and baptize. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Depending upon your translation, maybe Holy Ghost. So Paul follows up with yet another question. He says, into what then were you baptized? And here's the amazing thing. What th- this is something that I find fascinating about this right now, is that this is like 20 years after John the Baptist's death. Right? This isn't like, next, uh, like a year. Like, this is 20 years. This is a lifetime in some cases. And you see John's legacy still coming out. Like God is even using this and John's legacy to further the kingdom of God. But the disciples that Paul had met only received John's baptism. And John's baptism, and here's the difference, John's baptism, as Paul says, was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism that looked forward to the Christ. It wasn't a baptism that declared currently resting in Christ. And that's the big difference. They hadn't been putting their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. Therefore, they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit that would have sealed them with Christ, that makes them a Christian. So if they had received Jesus' baptism, they would have heard of the Holy Spirit. 
But if you're the attentive type, then you'd be like, wait, pastor, we just talked about this like last week with Apollos. Didn't he just receive John the Baptist baptism? And he'd be like, yeah, he did. But the big difference between Apollos and these 12 disciples is that Apollos understood who Jesus was and was resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He didn't get the baptism part right. Because baptism doesn't save. Baptism is a declaration of something that has happened inside already. So Apollos, yes, he was baptized in the wrong one, but he was still resting in Jesus Christ for his salvation. And that's what we see in the difference here. See, baptism points, the baptism of Jesus Christ points you to the one who saved you. So Apollos might have been missing something, and that was corrected by Priscilla and Aquila, remember? And the baptism of the Ephesians received was one that looked forward to the Messiah. So Paul doesn't write them off. He actually takes the time and he explains it to them that, look, John's baptism was waiting. But here is the one that he was waiting for. It is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. The Ephesians needed to understand the role that Jesus played, as we see in verse 4, in redemption. They needed to publicly declare the faith in Jesus Christ in that baptism. And it was at that point of belief that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Something to think about is that not every profession of faith is truly a biblical one. And that's why it's important to ask questions. These men, they had faith, no doubt. 20 years later, they had faith. But it wasn't a faith in Jesus Christ. You and I need to be asking ourselves and maybe even gently asking each other sometimes, is this faith you have resting in the complete work of Jesus Christ that he did on the behalf of sinners like you and me? It's belief in this that we can have an assurance of our salvation. That Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, that the apostle, that not the apostles, that the prophets had been teaching of throughout the whole Old Testament, had come, was born of the Virgin Mary, grew up a sinless life, who died on the cross, not because of anything he did, but because of our sin, paying the punishment for our sins, so that his righteousness would be imputed upon all of those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. who would experience healing of their brokenness, purpose in life. So in verse 5, the outcome of that belief, as we see, is an obedience of baptism. The first step of obedience for anyone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is baptism. And now, rather than having a baptism uh, Rather than having a baptism that was about waiting, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, who is the Messiah. Fulfilling what Jesus taught in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, on a side note, we've done a few baptisms here. This is why when we baptize people, we say this, I, I 
I am going to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in his death and raised with him to newness of life. That's why we declare that, because it's a picture of something that has happened inside. And hopefully soon you'll have the opportunity, if you haven't been baptized, to have a class. We run them regularly, and we'll have one in September, and I encourage you to sign up for that. Where we're reminded of how our sins have been washed away, how we're forever united in faith in Christ, how we have moved from spiritual death to spiritual life, how we have passed through eternal judgment and safety. Baptism is when your faith goes public. It express, it's expressing your trust in Jesus as Savior. On a side note, this is why we often say when we're doing communion, if you haven't, aren't ready for baptism, you're not ready for communion. Because it's the first step of obedience is baptism. In verse 6, it was at this moment of belief that the Holy Spirit came on them. And these people were part of this transitional group that we see often popping up in Acts. And they were fully now incorporated into the church, which is shown by the Holy Spirit, how they publicly start doing things like these miracles of prophesying and speaking in tongues. But a mark of what, someone who is truly a Christian is not the speaking of tongues or the prophecy, but one who's fulfilling what Galatians 5, to 23 says, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Because even in Acts we see when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, it does it in different ways. But we do know that Galatians 5 is a consistent uh, the consistent line, let's call it. So this is an example of a descriptive thing, not a prescriptive thing. But in verse 7, we see that God saves 12 men, and it is assumed that even their families will become impacted by this. And as Paul is meeting with this new group in verse 8, they are still meeting in the synagogue. And for three months, Paul is speaking boldly, which means he's not holding back. He's not pulling punches. He's going full on into this. He's preaching that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And boldly, we see what he means by this when we get into Ephesians 6 with his letter to these very people. He says, and also for me, he's asking for prayer in this text, in, verse, in chapter 6. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see the impact of the Holy Spirit even working out in Paul as he is energized by the truths of the gospel and by the needs he sees in people to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray this for myself all the time because let's say this, if Paul had to pray for it, if Paul had to ask for prayer for it, we better be doing it too. Because last I checked, not many of us have traveled all the way to Spain proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We have a hard enough time walking across the street. I do. So I pray this for myself. I pray this for all of us. We pray, and will you pray this with me? That we would be bold with the gospel. 
in whatever situation God has placed us in. Pray that we will have the same determination to witness for Jesus Christ as Paul does. Pray that we would have the same means that Paul has to bring the good news of the gospel to the lost. That our witness will have the same zeal and enthusiasm. One of my favorite albums from a band is called Zeal. Good times. We will have a commitment. Pray that we will have a commitment to share the message about Jesus and show the gospel as the greatest treasure this world has ever known. So after nine months, or sorry, three months in verse 9, Paul again interacts with some stubbornness. You know, someone once said to me, stubbornness is ungodly. And I was like, I don't know. But we see it here. Spurgeon said it well. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some hearts to repentance hardens others in their sin. Those are amazing words. Because we see that right here. We see that coming through. Some hearts get hard and some hearts get soft. I do not know. All I know is that I'm called to be faithful in the proclamation. That's my job. God is the one who makes it effective. So I declare the good news of Jesus Christ that Christ died for that Christ died and rose again. And the, the outcome of this stubborn and unbelief is that they begin to speak evil of the way before the congregation. The way is like the pre-name for Christian. And, but that doesn't stop Paul. He just pivots. He doesn't lose sight of the mission to bring the message about Jesus, so he just moves again down the street to another hall and continues to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is the outcome of what happens. No longer is he stuck with the confines of the synagogue. Now he's in this hall. And he begins to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. He begins to encourage and exhort this new church. And what is the outcome we see in verse 10? All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, Ephesus was an economic powerhouse of the Roman Empire at that time. It was the fourth largest city. It was a place where everybody went. So when Paul moves his location from the synagogue to the hall, it allows for more people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in his boldness. And as people would travel in to trade, they would hear about this guy named Paul who was talking about something new. So they'd go and hear, and you'd see Paul boldly proclaiming, persuading the good news of Jesus Christ, how this man was born, and he was, grew up, he was sinless, and how he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And see, God sovereignly brings Paul back to Ephesus, and he sovereignly puts him into another place where he will declare the good news of Jesus Christ to an even bigger audience as God continues to call people to himself. And it's not just one type of people group. We see it's both Jews and Greeks. And I love this reminder because the Christ church is not just about one people group. 
It's not confined, the gospel is not confined by geography or, or culture or even persecution. And yet again, even ethnicity is not even held, holding the gospel back. The kingdom of God is full of all people of all tribes and languages. And I see that every week when I get the opportunity to preach. So even though there is unbelief, it doesn't mean that the word of God doesn't continue to grow. And God makes the witness effective as his word continues to increase. And it's just an amazing thing. And someone might be like, Pastor, you keep talking about the gospel or, you know, this seems to be kind of repetitive within this text. It kind of seems like it's the same story all the time. And my reply to you is, have you got it yet? have you? Because I need to be reminded of these things every week. Every week. I need to open God's word and come face to face with him and be reminded of these things every week. Not just once in my life, every day. This is why it's so important to gather together because we come together beaten and bruised and pummeled from a week of living out in this world and we need to come back together and be reminded of who God is who's truly on the throne so often we can get wallow in our self-pity we ask ourselves in situations that look like defeat this is what we need to ask ourselves instead is what good will God bring out of this situation And Paul continued to proclaim the gospel because he knew who the object of that message is and how he was the victor is the victorious captain. So in verses eleven to twenty, we see a prevailing message, even with the wrong motives. And quite frankly, even growing up as a kid in the church, I found this to be the most humorous, one of the most humorous stories. Because can you just imagine this? Okay, like seven people go into the room to meet with one guy. And then suddenly you hear a big ruckus going on in the room. And now they got beat up so bad that they were naked. They were tussling around on the ground. And somehow those clothes got ripped off and they ran out. No wonder that information got spread around. But we'll get there. Verse 11 and 12, we see how God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And, and I think Christians get caught up with the whole aspect of the miracle, and we get blinded by the fact of what this is truly about. And we do this all the time. We're, Christians are guilty of this all the time. It's like with um, testimonies. Like, whose testimony generally gets the biggest praise? The one that has the dirtiest details, let's be honest but we're all saved by God's grace. We're all deserving of hell. It doesn't matter how dirty your past life was or how clean your past life is. The point is this in what I say. God always gets the glory. Always. Because we're undeserving of that. And here, Paul, once again, this amazing thing is happening. And we need to be reminded that Paul is not the source of the power God is. God is just using Paul to help further the good news of Jesus Christ and to call people to himself. We've seen all sorts of these things in Acts, 
And it's important to see that these aren't magic tricks or some sort of shows of power to try and impress those who are watching, but these are signs of God's work as he works through the apostles. And this is God who is healing the people. And God graciously accommodates human belief and expectation to encourage people to come to him and find what Paul is proclaiming. Right? Every time a handkerchief or apron went away and somebody got healed, they would want to know more, so they would come back. And the further was that the gospel went throughout all of Asia. And people see this. And now we're introduced to these traveling Jewish exorcists, which in itself is really messed up. Like, it, it, like they're so far from God even at this moment. But in verse 13, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh man, this is a warning for everybody. These men weren't Christians and they make a very big mistake. They seek to use the name of Jesus like some sort of magic formula, like those books that they would carry around, like an incantation. They thought, if I just say Jesus' name, this is what's going to happen. And they were pretenders and didn't have what it took to engage the powers of evil. And these men will learn a very valuable lesson. I don't know what happens to them after, but I doubt they, were, they stuck around. Well, A, their whole reputation was ruined as the seven naked men running through town. But they assuming the power is in the name used as a magic spell or incantation. And they think that's the power to exorcise demons. To say in Jesus' name, as a reminder for us who are Christians, we are reminding ourselves of the theological and biblical truth that we come in the name of Jesus every single time we pray. Every single time. Because, again, of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Every single time we pray, if it be a short, God help me, to the long, like, ten-minute pre-supper prayer that somebody always seems to do, we do that through Jesus Christ. And sometimes we treat, even as Christians, we add on in Jesus' name as a way of validating the things that we said. That would be invoking the name of Jesus very wrongly. Because we're called to pray according to the will of God, not pray whatever is on our heart or mind and do whatever we want and use God like a cash machine and say, hey, here's my pin code in Jesus' name. But here we see these people taking the Lord's name. Essentially, they're doing the Lord's name in vain. And these seven men were so far from God, they decided to try this out. And in verse 15, we see the evil spirit answered them, well, Jesus, I know, obviously, because he is the creator of the universe. Paul, I recognize, because why would he be recognized? Because he's one of Christ's. But who are you? Meaning, you're not of Christ. And the evil forces knew the difference between one who truly ministered in the name of Jesus and these pretenders. 
here's something that we need to really understand, and our brothers and sisters who are not from North America understand this very well. Uh, one commentary put it this way, there is nothing funny about demons or demon possession. I think in North America, we don't talk about this a lot, because I, like even, even as I'm talking about it right now, I'm kind of like, eh, that's a feeling, right? But in the modern West, we do not take demons seriously enough. With most of the West not even believing in demons at all. This is a stark contrast to believers in other parts of the world where skepticism or, or belief based only on empirical evidence are not the only ways of looking at the world. This stuff still happens now. So let's make sure we don't, like, oh, yeah, we laugh at it. I know I'm laughing at it because it is kind of funny, but it's also something to take very seriously. It is a true power, but Jesus is greater. In verse 16, but there was something funny about what happened next with these sons. And when the sons attempted to use the name of Jesus, the evil spirits retorts with that Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the evil spirit knows they don't have faith in Jesus Christ and knows that they have no authority at all to invoke the name of Christ. The saving power of Jesus' name isn't shown by just saying it, but by trusting the person whose name it belongs to. And the possessed man goes on and he beats them mercilessly to the point that they escape literally with nothing on their backs as they run out naked. But here's the cool part. In verse 17, we see the outcome of this because everyone hears this story. They know that these men were pretenders, but they also know the power of Jesus, and fear fell upon them all, as we see in verse 17, and people began to treat the name of the Lord not as some sort of cash machine system of validating their prayers or their requests, but with the fear that Jesus deserves. Jesus is a power that can't be controlled. Jesus will not be a lackey for anyone who calls on his name. I'm always reminded of Revelation 19. And I, I've, I, like uh, one pastor once called it the UFC Jesus. Like when we close our eyes and we picture Jesus, we think of like green hills sitting on a hill, playing his guitar, saying kumbaya, or something like that. Our God is victorious, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. He is not a lackey. In the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They praised the greatness of Jesus. Instead of mocking like we saw with these seven men, it is honored as it should be. And the outcome of knowing Jesus is praise. The more I understand what God has done for me, the more I will seek to extol the name of Christ. The more I reflect upon the grace that God has poured out on my life, how can that not bring me to praise? How? Like, I understand circumstances may not change, but my attitude in those circumstances does change. 
as I'm reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is a plan for anything that happens. The more we understand that we are the wretched sinner and that God saved us, the more that should bring up praise, and it might be through tears, I get that. But I should be able to praise the name of the Lord. Even Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. For my Redeemer lives, he says. Job does that. So what is the outcome? God even uses these wrong motives of these pretenders to grow his kingdom as we see. In verse 18, also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And this is now a public expression of repentance. The people that were practicing the magic arts began to burn their books. And what are these books? As I was saying, they are the incantations, their list of incantations that they would say to get these evil spirits to do whatever they want. But what I see is Romans 8, 13 happening. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And these people were seeking to live by the Spirit and cutting ties with their old life, knowing that Jesus was more powerful, that Jesus was better than everything that the old life could offer. And do you see what the gospel produces in these people? It produces confessing. And not just like between me and God, but to one another. True repentance brings confession. Confessing is agreeing that what has been done was wrong and against God. But not only were they confessing, they were divulging. Like imagine this, we're sitting around in your small group one day and someone actually comes and starts literally confessing their sin one by one that happened and getting into detail of what happened. It means that they were giving details about how they had sinned. They weren't just saying, God, I'm a sinner, forgive me. They were saying, God, I have sinned against you in this way. And the way that they had been sinning was about trusting in these incantations. I think for us, sometimes we are so general in our repentance, we need to work on being a little bit more specific. But in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So they freely confess. They freely confess to one another. And I'm not saying stand up in the middle of the church service and confess your sin, okay, please? What I am saying is I pray that you have relationships close enough where you can confess and divulge those sins because you need them because you need someone to smack you across the head every once in a while when you start going down that path again. James 5.16 talks about this, and we need strong relationships. And in verse 19, we see that true repentance and confession actually comes through in an action. This is because the new heart that is given that enables you to believe hates the sin that you once enjoyed. So they willingly give up their past regardless of the cost because they have come to know the treasure of Jesus Christ. Imagine this. God saved them. They're, con- they're confessing. And then they start looking around their house and seeing all of these books full of things that kind of tied them back to their old life. So they come together and they decide to have a $50 million burning party. That's how much it is. $50 million that goes up in smoke. 
You know, and some of us, we hold on to things so strongly that are like, well, that cost me a lot of money. I don't know if I want to give that up. And here, they're giving up $50 million. Maybe there's an inflation thing, and maybe it's more, I don't know. They were prepared to give up valuable treasure for the sake of the gospel. So when you hear the gospel, what does it stir within you? What kind of desire does it invoke in your life? Does it show? John Owen, a Puritan, said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's a great book called The Mortification of Sin. We need to bring that book name back, Mortification. It's an active act of beating our sin to death. Full on war. And that's what they were doing there. The power of God enables us to live for Christ as we see in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, the Holy Spirit, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. By the grace of God, he has empowered us to fight that sin and we see that. Do you proclaim the gospel knowing that it is the power to transform lives? And I pray that you are. And the outcome is this in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So let me ask you this question. Is there anything in this world that can withstand the test of time? And the answer is yes. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what, you may ask me? Let us continue to proclaim the prevailing and ever-increasing message of the gospel. It is the only thing that can transform lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the only thing that can test, has, has gone through the test of time. It is the only thing that can give us hope you know, as a pastor, Psalm 55, no, take out as a pastor, as a Christian, Psalm 55 has been pinnacle in my life. Come to me all who are thirsty, he says. But as a pastor, verses 10 to 11, give me so much hope, because sometimes you're wondering if people are listening, right? As some people, you know, they're falling asleep or whatever. But in verses 10 to 11, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater, so shall my word, God says, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, he says, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because it's the thing that prevails and increases. And it gives us so much hope because if I look at this written 2,000 odd years before and it's still continuing to grow, that gives me hope. It gives me validity in what I believe. 
And we can find comfort in God's word continuing to increase and prevail because God's word increasing doesn't depend upon my efforts. God's word continuing to grow helps us to look back and see how the gospel has continued to grow across cultures and nations and generations regardless of the opposition. God's word increasing gives us hope for today that in times of personal struggle or when we're facing difficulties in this world, we know that the word of the Lord will prevail mightily, meaning we will always have hope. And it encourages us to remain steadfast in our faith and to trust that God's purposes will ultimately be fulfilled even in the face of adversity. Let's continue to proclaim the prevailing and ever-increasing message of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we just, I thank you for this reminder this morning. Lord, sometimes we go throughout this life wondering if anything is working or if you are still there. But Lord, I look at what Luke has written about in Acts and I see how your word continues to prevail. I don't even have to go far in history to see how your word had continued to prevail. So Lord, I pray that we would grow and grow and trust you more and more that we would be people of the word, that we would have boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be active in praying for that. Lord, give me the strength and the boldness to even walk across the streets. Lord, forgive us of those times where we've allowed fear to get in the way and help us to have the boldness to continue proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.